Hey everybody, I'm here with Lon from Lon TV. What's up, man? Hey everybody. Hey Bob. Good to see so you. So we uh we just did an interview on his channel and uh I figured, you know what, we're here, we got the stuff set up. Why don't we keep recording and uh we'll we'll put one up on mine as well just for fun and kind of hang out and talk because there was a ton of questions I wanted to ask you and a, a bunch of just random nerdiness I figured people would like to hear us uh, just go off about. So let's thanks do for it. taking the time to do this. Thanks for having me. <laughs> So what is your origin story? Where did you get started in all this? Because you have a pretty solid YouTube channel. You review a wide variety of products of, of all different kind of electronic stuff. You know, uh, how did how did you even get started doing that? You know, it just started like like every good thing. It starts by accident. Um, so <laughs> I had it, it's a it's a very long story, but the short version of it was I, I was um, seeing a lot of my friends who were working in the media lose their jobs after the 2008 correction or the recession. And I, I felt like there was an opportunity to create something local using video to, to communicate news to people. And so this was back in 2009-ish is when I first started going with that. I had a couple people that were partnering with me on the effort and we found a way to, to, to report local news with video in a very inexpensive way. And it was an idea that you know, it was probably a couple of years ahead of its time, I like to think. You know, it, did, it didn't quite work out the way that I was hoping it would, uh, mm -hmm. primarily because it was very expensive to um, actually make the ads that would run with the videos. <laughs> so we hadn't thought through the fact that none of our potential ad clients, these local businesses, would actually have videos to put on, on the air. So um, we ended up, uh, you know, it, it, it did well in the sense that I think we were able to learn a lot. Um, I learned a lot. And I had some equipment that, was left over. Um, namely, I bought one of these Blackmagic video switchers that allows you to switch multiple cameras, you know, kind of like what you would do in a live stream. And in the course of creating that startup, I was reviewing the items I was buying on Amazon just to be helpful to the rest of the world. And I got into this Amazon review program called Amazon Vine. And what they do is they, they pluck out reviewers that they think are being helpful to the community and then they algorithmically pair up those reviewers with products that manufacturers provide to Amazon. And so they send you the item, you review it, and you go from there. And I started um, with you know, just written reviews, and then I noticed that Amazon allowed you to upload video. So I said, hey, I know how to make video. I love making videos. And I started reviewing products with video. And I would put those videos up. I got more helpful votes. And then I started parking those, those videos on YouTube. And again, it was just a hobby, right? Um, and before I knew it, I was getting a lot of traffic on the videos that were parked on YouTube. And for me, like there was, there's always those aha moments. So for me, it was, I reviewed this external hard drive. It's like this thing you'd buy at Staples, like in the blister pack hanging from the, the shelf. Mm -hmm. And it got like 30 or 40,000 views. It was like the Seagate external hard drive, you know, something that you would, you would not, you know, give two thoughts about, right? You just need a hard drive, you buy it. And I was thinking, right. why, is, why is there 30 or 40,000 views on this video? Well, it turns out most of them were coming from India. And if you're shopping for a hard drive in India, perhaps that cost of that cheap hard drive is, is a more substantial portion of your income than it might be in another part of the world. So there's more research being done on lower end stuff. And so I said, huh, that's interesting. And I started like doing like rinse and repeat experiments. Like what if I reviewed this thing? What would happen? What would if I did mm -hmm. that? What would happen? And I eventually be, got a, a gut feel as to what would do well on the channel um, or just do well as a viewership from a viewership perspective. Because at the time it wasn't even about revenue, it was just about views, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, and it just kind of went from there. And and a lot of experimentation. I took that video switcher, and I you know I've I've figured that if I put myself on camera, it might do better. And sure enough, it did. Um, I don't know why, because I would not want to look at me all the time, but hey, it works. So. Um, so I found if I was on camera, and that's what's the beauty of these analytics is that you can test everything, right? There's no mystery. You can test it all. So I found that a video with me on camera did better than with me not on camera. Um, and so, you know, it all just kind of came together. And then I was working full time. And so I had limited amounts of time, which got even more limited when, when we had kids. So I started using the video switcher, that Blackmagic switcher that was sitting in the basement. Um, I built a little studio in the basement one day, like over Thanksgiving break, and uh, I found that I could I could shoot and edit the video while I did the video, like during the recording, essentially, and that cut down the, the time substantially, and I could crank out a higher output, and that's kind of where it went. It's a real commodity kind of business. Yeah, I, I have my workflow for the weekly stuff now, both the, the weekly podcast and the Q&As that I do. So the only post-processing is dropping all the files into a timeline and then dropping the transitions and processing the audio. It went from two hours of post-processing to 20 minutes plus however long you're waiting while it renders and compresses. So it's like, when you just said that about your workflow, like my heart just fluttered for a minute. Like, oh, <laughs> only I had the space to build something like that where I could I could set it up and, and have different angles and all record in real time like that. That's it's a brilliant idea. And, Man, I'm just every little, every step saver I try to integrate, uh, every step saver that I think of, I try to integrate in my workflow just for that exact reason. That's so. been kind of the fun of doing this is that I've got it now to a point, I had the basement redone. I took like my first two years of YouTube revenue and renovated my basement, um, which, was a, which was great because it was so freaking cold down here. <laughs> so I put in a yeah. heater and um, got the walls done. But what's, what's been great about my setup is, I, I kid you not, I come down, I turn on the computer that I use. I use a computer now for, um, for that video switching component. I have a, a vMix uh, machine that I built. Um, I, I basically turn on the three cameras that I've got. I've got one here, one over here, and one overhead. Um, I have my, my studio lights on one of those smart plugs. So I hit mm -hmm. the button on the phone, boot the computer up, I sit down and do my video. Like there's no stuff that has to happen first. And awesome. I don't have to position the camera. It's just so, it's so much easier. And you know what I found, and this was another thing that I discovered from the analytics, the more time, and I, and I don't wanna say like, to, to encourage people to put out garbage, because you do wanna spend, you do wanna <laughs> create quality content, but I did find the more time I took editing and, and making it perfect, the less views it got. So hmm. it, it was something where I was like, well, I'm not totally crazy about this video. And I'm not the kind of person that would, would normally just say, oh, it's good enough. You know, it's never good enough. But I was like, you know, I'm not crazy about it, but I can live with it. And I'd put it up and that one would do better than the one I thought I did a really good job on because I spent so much time on. And it's funny, I look at some of these, these videos you find on YouTube of, uh, and I don't want to criticize anyone because everyone's workflow is, is what work, works for them right. and their viewership. But I look at some of these these videos where where people like have those timelines with with 75 rows of video effects and different clips that they're overlaying and B-roll and audio stuff. And for my, for me, like my timeline is just one strip of video. <laughs> it's just piecing together the components. It's a little little modularity. Occasionally, there's a little bit more editing that goes into it, but uh, not much. And actually, what's funny was I had I had a video that I shot the other day, and I. Something I was saying in the video I learned was incorrect before I posted it. And so I couldn't reshoot it because I had shot it two weeks before. My hair was longer. I, d I didn't have the same clothes. Right. So I, I chopped it up a bit. 
and then I did I did a couple of like uh, I I re-recorded re some portions just as voiceover, like stuff I never do. And my viewers, one of my viewers said, something seemed weird about the editing on this one because <laughs> it was edited. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it works. And, and I kind of record like a live stream. And some days it takes me forever because I can't get the words out. Um, and other days, like yesterday, I had a great day. I just did it. It's awesome. <laughs> Isn't it funny how... how there are so many factors into what what makes things easier someday, you know? And sometimes it's obvious, right? If you didn't get a lot of sleep the night before, you're kind of out of it, maybe you take, you know, I've had those days where like I was in such a fog because I didn't sleep the night before and I did everything in like one take and I watched it back the next day, next day going, this is going to be the worst podcast I've ever done. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I nailed every one of those. It's just, yeah. And then some yeah. days like I feel like I'm in a good mood, but it takes me, because I do for the weeklies, each segment is one recording. Right. So it, you know, I'll do, I'll do five takes in a row of something that takes five minutes. And by the, you know, by the end of the last one, I'll be like, ah, oh, I think I finally got it. All right. I'm almost done. And then the tractor trailer oh, will come by yeah. and I'm just like, ah, right. Yeah. You're in Manhattan. So you got a, you got a lot more noise to deal with there. And, and uh, luckily down here, I'm usually okay. Unless my children invade the space that I'm in, which is happening more frequently when we have all this learn from home stuff. Um, or the, uh, the, the big thing that I have to deal with is when the, uh, the lawnmower guy comes. Because that's like an, like a half hour of I'm done. <laughs> Leaf blow, you know, the, the blowers and the mowers going and everything. But what I yeah. found what I can do is I, I, I go until I'm like, okay, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm going to stop it right here and quit while I'm ahead. Um, and then I chop it right there and then I start another segment. Um, and that's, that's work for me. So I sometimes will like leave a note. So I have somebody who helps me edit now. So mm -hmm. I'll get through one part and then I'll screw up somewhere and I'll find a spot where we can very cleanly cut the the next clip in and i had a college professor so i, I was in college uh, from 1994 to 98 and i had never had any professional video training but i did have a public access tv show when i was 13 and i kind of got i learned you learn the process in their little workshop as to how tv works and it was such a fun thing and so when i got to college i, I took a couple of uh, elective classes in tv production and i had this uh, professor who was a great professor the kind that you only learn by screwing up with. Mm. So he didn't tell you anything. He would let you, he just throw you out there and nothing was ever good because that's how he taught. It was like, this is garbage because you didn't do this. You should have had a, you know, and one of the things that he was vehemently opposed to were jump cuts. Yeah. Which are all yeah. over. And, I, I hate them so much. I have mm -hmm. none of the formal training that you had. I have no training in any of this other than I remember when I was a kid playing with my dad's camcorder. Mm -hmm. um, but when I first started to see YouTube videos, I think what happened, and this is, you know, this is just a wild guess here. I'm, I'm completely talking, talking out of nowhere, but I think there was a, a bunch of amateurs that cut up their video and thought, you know what, it's YouTube, it's good enough. And right. then those videos got popular. Yeah. Right. And then a bunch of other people tried to emulate that and took a took a two minute monologue and then chopped out any dead space in between to make it, you know, to give it that like quick jumping thing to it. Right. And I think it became a style. It did. It, it drove me. It, it's gross. It drove me insane. Like I and I, I to this day, like I think I have five jump cuts out of 400 videos or something. And it was just one of those times where it was the only thing I could do. But even on uh, the non-week, on the weeklies, I'll re-record the whole segment, even if I get, you know, it, it, something happens like the horn at the end. There right. was a few 
crazy ones that I just split in where I was like, sorry, everybody. Like it's, I can't yep. redo that. That was right. perfect. It was them. too good. Yeah. You got to let, you got to live with it. And, and, and yeah, and, and the jump cuts. Oh my gosh. My, my professor, he would fail you. Like, I don't even think it was like fail the assignment. I think he would just kick you right out of the class. It was that it was that serious of, a, of an infraction. If like, not even an infraction, it was a felony um, <laughs> to have a jump cut. So like that, that gets ingrained in your head. And it's, you know, it's very different now, right? I mean, the whole, you know, video has gone from being, you know, you still have like the high quality stuff out there, like you'd see on network news at night, or you'd see on the Netflix or, or Disney Plus, where you've got, you know, real high production kinds of things out there that have to be perfect. Um, I think in our space, perfection is not, is not necessarily looked for. Marcus Brownlee kind of is the exception, like on the higher end scale of things. But I think the, the, I think what makes this medium work for people like us is that it is imperfect sometimes. And that's what makes it real, you know? Um, well, and, respectfully, and I think like for that. a lot of the stuff that you and I do, it's like useless. Like if you're doing a review on a laptop and you're talking about a really great feature or a flaw, who cares if you have like a swooping camera shot and like right. a special effect? Like yep. no one, can, they just want to know what the cool thing or the bad thing is. Like it's just a, a waste of time. And I try to make, I try to make the higher production videos I do look good enough where people could take them seriously and not just be, you know, me talking in front of a table or something like that. But I do always have those moments where I'm like, I can't spend any more time on this. I got yeah. 20 other things I got to do. It's, it's just, it's going out. So somebody said to me once too, that, you know, a video that, that, that is not posted is not getting watched. Yeah. And, and I think you could spin your wheels and, and two things that really get me is, is one, the people that, that have a talent and don't, don't share it with the world. Cause like if mm. there's never been a time in history when you, you, you could share a talent with the world easier than now, even if only five people watch it, if you have five people that like what you do, that's a start, <laughs> you know, right. it doesn't take, you don't have to have, you know, millions of people to make a living on this platform. And, and you can certainly, you know, find a path, um, cause you get discovered, right? Like there's all sorts of great stuff. So that drives me crazy. Uh, the other thing that drives me crazy is the people that just can't finish it. Like just get it up and see what happens. Take the risk, you know, and, and, and see where where it goes and i've had people like you know reach out to me with questions about production like you know what do i need and like you don't need anything do you have a phone yes then start with the phone until the yeah. phone doesn't accomplish the, the goals that you set out to do I, I did not buy you know really like i started with this this cheap video switcher but i i plugged in everything i had into it you know mm -hmm. I had these, these odd cameras. They didn't match when you switch between them. I, I literally had a shop light for my studio light because that's what I had in the basement. You know what I mean? And I, I started with that. And it wasn't until I said, I'd like to do picture in picture like I've got us in right now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I, when I wanted to do more things like that, that's when I upgraded and bought equipment until I really knew I needed it. And right. I've had a few people over the years that would go out and buy. And I say to people when I do one of these production videos, like, don't buy this because I'm using it, you know, but here's what I use. Um, but mm -hmm. I've had people go out and just like buy everything and never start because they, they, they put the cart before the horse. Right. And the cameras on these phones, like I have, you know, the new iPhone, the new Android phones, the cameras are so good that it's, right. it's fine. And if you can tell a good story and, you know, roll with it and then, you know, take some risks because I found like, you know, if you have an opinion or you have, uh, you know, a product review that you want to put out there, yeah, people might criticize it, but you might be surprised to see how many people like what you just did. 
And you would never know that until you put it out there. And you know, even with my, my PC reviews, you know, we've got it down now to a real formula. Um, mm -hmm. But the formula came from all of the things that people said I didn't do on the initial videos. Oh, you missed this. You missed that. Yeah. Yeah, things that were not obvious to me were very obvious to the audience, to the point now where um, very rarely does someone say, oh, you missed something. You know, um, or if I start seeing people, like, like lately when I review the laptops, there's a lot more of a focus on the webcam on the laptop because everyone's on these Zoom calls now. Never used to be a big concern of people, at least in my viewership. So now we're doing a little bit more because I was starting to hear that. Um, so, you know, and what I did on the initial PC reviews is I would post follow-up videos answering that question, and now we incorporate it all into one. You know what I mean? So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, especially in a commoditized environment, which is what I'm primarily operating in, 80% um, of my traffic are non-subscribers. So if um, in the commoditized environment, if you're taking in that viewer feedback, you can very easily do well there because mm -hmm. you're 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 answering the questions that people have and you don't know what those questions are unless you put the video up and sometimes you might right. be wrong you might screw it up but you know it makes it more real and i think the key thing is is that if you're ever wrong about something and you're you've you've corrected yourself at times right a lot um, yeah if you're wrong about something just put yourself up there and say you're wrong guess what you sh that's the right thing to do and people will appreciate that you're willing to to be honest with them when you're not 100 percent correct you know it's all yeah you, basic you just touched stuff. upon like a, a bunch of trigger points for me like i get genuinely offended when i hear people say there's too many podcasts there's too many streamers there's too many anything and it's just i don't think people understand like if you if you start streaming and some friends that you have that you grew up with watch and you know some uh, some buddies that you've made along the way and you have 10 people watching a stream imagine having a party with 10 people over hanging out i mean that's yeah. that's a full success every stretch of the imagination like you don't need to be just because you're a streamer or a podcast or anything else doesn't mean that you have to try and make your living off of it treat it the same way you would having a bunch of friends over and having fun and it just it's really awesome. And you're right about the technology. I mean, I the first couple of in-person interviews I did, actually many of them actually, I had my iPhone on a tripod. Yep. And uh, once or twice I would tape a piece of paper that I like coned around it just to, you know, and it would actually be better than the cheap lav mics I bought. The yeah. secondary audio from my phone actually ended up being more than what I needed. So yeah, you don't just do it. And just what you it. said about not finishing projects, that is so true in every every aspect of life do you know how many how many bands you know i, I did like a mini you know two weekend in a row tour with that never never done anything never put in an album never did a video right you know they just played gigs and we're always talking about finishing it or how many freaking electronics projects that are at 99 percent and right. they just for whatever reason they, they don't walk away it. from it and it, it it saddens me because it's like you know I, I hear a lot of and look i get it like there's there's people have there people have significant challenges and impediments to achieving their goals, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of barriers, especially economic barriers that people can face, and I, and I don't want to discount that. But that said, um, I, I've talked to a lot of people who have passions that they could be doing something with, that, oh, it's too hard, or this or that, um, you know, and, or people start something and it, and it fails and they just give up on everything else. And for me, like with this media stuff, you know, I started with that local news video thing. That didn't work out. And granted, there was a lot of time investment. There was a lot of, you know, it was some degree of monetary investment that I had to put into that to buy all the equipment initially. I lost time. <laughs> I lost money. Um, but I didn't look at it. I looked at the effort as not 
as, as a failure in the sense that it didn't succeed economically. Um, but there were things that came out of it that were good. Um, one thing in particular is that we were covering local news in these little towns and about four or five or six of the people that worked with us as reporters uh, went from us to a career in TV news within a matter of weeks. So they were able oh, to wow. get on the job. It was amazing. It felt good. You know, we had on the, go- on the job training, um, you know, one, one in particular, she was great. Like she, um, actually a couple of them were like this. They, you know, they, they came out of college knowing the basics and the technical expertise on how to report. But the writing wasn't, wasn't all solid yet. And you know, mm-hmm. we, we, my partner was a former news anchor. And so she coached them through the writing of the story and planning out how to put together a news package. Um, and what was amazing was that when they, you know, they had a few weeks under their belt and they started applying for, for real TV jobs, and we were paying them a little bit. You know, some of them, we gave them equipment, whatever. Um, you know, we weren't paying a career salary here. It was more of a right. freelancer kind of gig. Um, but they, they uh, would go to these job interviews so far ahead of others applying because typically an intern in a, in a news station is handed the mic at a scene and pretends to report a story. They're not actually yeah. reporting the story. They're there helping the reporter who then says, okay, kid, here, you got 10 minutes. Go ahead and do your stand-up. Um, and we were actually able to, they were actually demonstrate to these news directors that they could write a story uh, and they could uh, report it. And you know, what work they were presenting as their, as their highlight reel was real work for kids that were like literally weeks out of college. Um, And so that was really beneficial and I felt good about that. And that's a business idea that I may look at down the road. There could be some real value to opening some kind of academy um, to help teach those skills to even for people that didn't major in journalism in college, right? So there's there's a potential there. Um, So, but yes, the effort failed. We learned something. What else did I learn? I learned how content gets disseminated, right? I learned mm-hmm. how search engines work. I learned how to format video for, you know, like all the foundational things that became this accidental career of mine started with a failure. I had another effort that spun off of the failed effort that also failed, but I learned other things there and I learned how to, how to uh, you know, report things fairly and, you know, started thinking about the ethics of how I should approach things through that effort. So, you know, you can look at your, at your failed business idea as a failure, or you can look at it as, what foundational things did I learn through this failure? And yes, it hurts to say this isn't working and you have to be realistic about it to say, you know, yes, this brilliant idea that I thought was gonna make me the next Steve Jobs of whatever industry that I'm entering into, it's never, you know, nine times out of 10, it's not gonna work, but you're gonna take that. Every good thing you do, every every really big accomplishment has to come from failures, right? Absolutely. you know, it, it doesn't mean that you have to lose everything in order to get ahead, but I mean, like, you have to try a bunch of stuff and see what sticks to the wall. And that's, you know, that in every aspect of my life, I've just learned to embrace that. I can't tell you how many times I was with a band, we tried something that didn't work that sparked mm-hmm. a better idea, or yep. we designed a, a piece of hardware that, you know, all of us was, you know, hey, what about this idea? No, that's stupid. Oh, hey, wait a minute. Like, you know, it's bad ideas very often spark great ones. And that, that you, know, was, you know who's really good? Like ba- bands and comedians. Like you ever listen to like, you know, Joe Rogan interviewing another comedian, like hearing them talk yeah. about their, their life experience. You know, comedians do this. Uh, you know, they're, they're, by the way, the best interviewers ever. But they also go through this process of going to a, a local club. Even the, the accomplished comedians go to some small hole-in-the-wall yeah. club to test out new material, right? Like, you know, like there's a... There's a trial and error to things, and if you don't try, um, you know, we used to have this saying. You're from Connecticut, you know. If you don't, you can't. You don't play, you can't win for the lottery, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. 
if you don't put something out there, you don't know if it's going to work or not. And I think a lot of people are afraid to put something out there. Um, and, and I get it. Um, and I am too all the time. But you know what? I've gotten to the point where I'm like, well, let's put it out there. See what, see what sticks. <laughs> and and yeah, you can you learn, learn you know? from yourself as well. You got to learn, you know, you got to, you got to learn how to take the feedback. You got to have to, you have to decide one of the hardest things for me is figuring out which comments are just, you know, crazy people looking for attention or which mm -hmm. are people that are trying so hard to help, but they're just not really good at wording stuff, which is especially in the nerd community, no offense, fellow yeah. nerds, but like <laughs> there's a lot of that. There's a lot yep. of people that are trying to be really nice and helpful. They just don't know how to get their point across politely. And that's, that's something I've always struggled with. I've gotten a lot better at because there's been so many people that have helped on a level that I can't even begin to describe. Like I've changed the way that I do things in my workflow, have added pieces of equipment to my setup that I would never be able to accomplish the things I do without it. And it all came from somebody who at first I was like, are they trolling me? Or is this yeah. like, you know, is this a real person? And I just, I had the patience or to just say, well, let me see. And let me just give them a chance and see, and it, you know, it's, it's important to get all of that feedback and to try to figure out which is the right stuff to listen to and, and which isn't and watching yourself. Oh man, yeah. that, that only, <laughs> it's hard. like, I always try to be me in everything that I do. I've never really fit in anywhere and I've always been okay with that. Uh, but there's, you want to be the, the right version of you. And I remember seeing a video of myself, one gig, I, I was, I was in such a good mood that a couple of people that didn't know me were like, it's Bob drunk up there. Like I know he's like, <laughs> I just, no, I was just, I was in a wonderful mood. And afterwards, some of the, uh, one of the, or two of the people from the band were like, you know, you're a little out of hand, you know, this was a little embarrassing. And I'm like, well, let me see the video. And the next day uh, they were like, yeah, during this song. And I'm like, no, that, that's me. That's, that's what I look like when I have fun. All right. Well, what about in this song? I'm like, once again, like I, I not, I would not be embarrassed to show that to anybody. And they're like, "All right, what about this?" And I went, "Oh God, was that me?" <laughs> like, in the moment, I did something that that felt fun and felt right. silly. Like I'm watching the video of it, going, "Oh, I look like an idiot!" Like, right. "Oh, this, that stings watching." But like, how would I have ever learned that that looked stupid? And that's not that's not the me I was trying to convey. If I didn't just suck it up, get the feedback and, and watch it, you know? And, you know, it's, and for me, I get a lot of like, uh, you know, I call them like those, those glancing blows of a, of a, of a meteor that goes through the atmosphere, you know, like these people that, that are not subscribed who just stumble upon one of my videos and comment. And there was a couple of things that I was doing early on um, that now when I go back and watch my old content, I can see exactly what they were, where they were coming from and I would cringe over it. And I didn't, and it was weird is that as I was editing those videos at the time, I didn't see it right? It took that feedback. So one person was like, why are you shouting? Because I apparently when I started these videos, I was like screaming, hey, everybody, you know, and, and I didn't even think that I was doing that. But I was until you know, I mean, it took time to come back and look at that. Um, so I was hearing some consistent feedback of, dude, take a breath. Um, I get that a lot. And even now to a lesser degree, but back then, you know, three or four years ago, um, a lot of that and it was interesting to see because I don't know what it was because I, I initially was like, I'm, I'm not talking that fast, am I? And, and it, now that I look back, I really was. And I think um, that feedback helped because even if it wasn't a conscious effort, I did start slowing down and I mm. stopped screaming at people when things started. And, you know, I, I, if you go back and look at some of my earlier videos, like I, I really cringe on some of these because like for some of them, yeah, I just don't breathe. And, and some, to some degree, it's the editing, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the clips being 
chunked together in such a way in which that it, it just doesn't sound like I'm ever breathing. Um, but to some degree, I was just just going on and on and on and on. And it, it you know, my, I think I'm better now than I was before. Um, at the end of the day, the analytics don't lie. So if you say a controversial opinion and you hear people, I'm going to unsubscribe. I don't get into the political stuff on my channel, obviously, but I, you know, it might be an issue that crosses mm. with political issues, right? Um, and and you, you tick off a lot of people over whatever you say. I'm unsubscribing, I'm unsubscribing. You got to look at the numbers and see, you know, did, did that opinion have an impact on your subscriber base? Did it result in your channel not doing as well? Um, you know, I think back to, uh, a, 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 I'm very critical of, of, of people in, in the independent content community that do things inadvertently or on purpose to, to damage the reputation of all of us, you know? Yeah. And so there was one in particular that I think got the most people riled up, which was back when um, uh, Ethan Klein went after uh, the Wall Street Journal on something. And he was actually, he, I, I understood where he was coming from, but his, he was not correct in his accusation. This was about um, somebody earning revenue for during the whole uh, the content gate thing with, with all, when YouTube started uh, you know, being more restrictive about who gets, gets, get, gets revenue. Um, and he went after the Wall Street Journal on something that he was totally wrong about. And I pointed it out, like, look, if you're going to make an accusation that significant by accusing them of making something up, um, you need to have your facts together and make sure that you are absolutely correct in that assertion before you just take a, you know, a knee-jerk reaction and put a video up to millions of people. Because, you know, the, the biggest enemy of us independent creators are the traditional incumbent media who mm -hmm. want to shut us down because they, they're losing millions and millions of dollars every day to people like us. <laughs> you know, the fact that you and I can make a living is because the ad revenue that used to be completely under the control of, you know, Rupert Murdoch and all these other media conglomerates are now coming to us. And now right. there's tens of thousands of people that can make a good living um, doing this content. And it does come at the cost of, of the old guard. And, you know, you, you don't want to put yourself in a position that creates that issue. And so those are the things that I might bring up from time to time. And, um, but, but you gotta look at your analytics. Reasonable opinion though. And that not only is that a perfectly reasonable opinion, it's one that you could look back on and go, you know, like I'll stand by this one. Like if you're, if you, if you feel the need, you meaning somebody that gets upset by this, if somebody mm -hmm. feels the need to lash out and freak out and unsubscribe over a perfectly reasonable opinion that they disagree with, then, that's not a valued subscriber anyway. Right. Like if I say, hey, my favorite cookie is chocolate chip, not really a fan of oatmeal raisin, but I'll take <laughs> right. one if somebody offers it to Unsubscribe, me. Unsubscribe, cancel you, right, yeah. <laughs> if you get upset over that, then it's not my problem and that's fine. But the analytics side of that, I mean, you still have to take that into account. There's lots of very reasonable, non-offensive things that you could say nowadays that are trigger points that will mm -hmm. you know, potentially get you canceled. And I, part of the thing, so, you know, you keep mentioning analytics and I'm kind of fascinated by that because I, not only do I not know what I'm doing based on my history, I probably am doing more damage than helping because throughout all of RetroRGB.com, every single person that I spoke to about how I set it up said, you're doing it wrong. You're not going to show up in the algorithm yet. If you Google any of the major terms that the site covers, I'm always in the top five results. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, I am the top five results. Right, right. So I just, I stopped paying attention because I didn't, you know, I just figured all of these people that, 
you know, wanted me to pay them a lot of money to help with my analytics didn't actually know what they were talking uh, about. No, they, they, they know how to game it, you know, and, and I think that's yeah. the key is that, that when you, SE, I, I often consider SEO like the modern equivalent of snake oil salesman. I don't want to insult yeah. all the SEO people out there. I think there's some very yeah. good ones that, that know how to make the responsible ways to up yourself here. Um, YouTube in particular is a really good platform because of the fact that they can measure attention in a way that you, you can't always do on a website, right? So um, why YouTube, I think, is so effective at making recommendations is because it, it knows what is getting the most watch time, the most attention. And, and so you can't fake that a lot of times. I mean, there are farms out there that try to do that, but I think they've, they've been able to make it very difficult to game that attention system, which also makes it difficult for them to communicate to us exactly what we should be doing. Um, but, you know, you're yeah. right. I mean, I think, I think here's what I found with YouTube, more so than the web. On YouTube, if you put out good content, you will get discovered and you will, you will be rewarded for creating content that engages with people. It, it you know, it's, it really does work. Um, I think there are spaces in which you can, be at an oversaturation point. And I think there's also within a niche, there's, there's a finite amount of people in that audience. Um, right. And so what I've focused on for my channel, I love retro video gaming, um, but I know that I don't know enough about it to do what you do. I don't know enough about it to, you know, to become like this technical wizard that can, you know, advise people on how to solder their televisions and stuff. So like the value that I can bring into that niche is is limited so what i discovered over the course of starting this channel is that there's there's my audience that i like to engage every monday on my wrap-up show and and through some of the retro gaming content that i cover through some of the networking stuff that i cover i have live production people within that that scope as well um, mm -hmm. but my audience is com is very fragmented because people find me because i reviewed some printer that they were looking at a few years ago or 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 this mm -hmm. laptop and and so um, for me, what I found is that a foc focusing on sustainability from a financial standpoint is what I've always looked at. And for me, it is, is why I spend about 80% of my time covering just general consumer electronics, which the retro community would have no interest in, but it pays the bills. It pays the bills through affiliate marketing, you know, uh, right. clicks and that sort of thing. Um, mostly, uh, it pays the bills through the ads that are very attractive on YouTube's platform, especially in, in this, this time of year when people are researching gifts to give to family members. Like, so, so, you know, that's why when you subscribe to me, you might only see a retro gaming related video once every you know, month or two, um, because I got to pay the bills by reviewing printers and computers and laptops, which I'm interested in, but it's not as fun as this other stuff. Um, so that, that was kind of the realization, especially when that, with that hard drive video that, wow, I could make a living reviewing these cheap external hard drives because somebody wants to know about it. And so you fill those little niches across a broader spectrum. Uh, you'll find higher CPMs and you'll see all that. And that's where the analytics really come in because you know, I go on there every morning, you know, what, what are people searching for to find me? What videos are engaging people this month? Um, here's a really good example. Uh, about two or three or four, four years ago, maybe even five years ago now, I did a video about Chromebooks. Mm -hmm. And it was about, it was a video about Chromebooks. <laughs> like, what is a Chromebook? This is what it is. This is what it, it, what it, it's not. And the video tanked, like it didn't do well at all initially. 
Um, but I had a feeling that it needed to be done. And two and a half years later, that video, which tanked on its initial upload, um, became one of my highest earning videos hmm. by, a, a, by a factor of 10. Like it was, it was almost like 10% of my revenue one month for a video wow. that I had done three years prior. And the reason was is that as people started looking for information about Chromebooks, you'd either find you know, the, the, the Chromebook fan who thinks they're the best thing ever or the, the techie guy who's, like these, who's on Linux who thinks these Chromebooks are nothing but junk. I just said, here's what it is and here's what it isn't. And that engaged people and it engaged general consumers. Um, and so it, you know, it's one of those things where when I saw that, I said, oh, that's interesting. I went back and watched the video. Is this content still relevant for right this minute? And it was, and I put a little tickler in my um, to-do task because I knew this was a profitable video. Um, and I said, go back and look at that video next year to make sure it's still relevant. And when I went back and looked at it the following year, it was missing some stuff. So I redid it for, for 2020. I did the 2020 edition. And right around this time of year, it goes right back up because people are out looking for laptops for family members for gifts. They want to know what a Chromebook is. Now that video is, is coming up front and center. Um, so it's to some degree playing the SEO game, um, but it's really thinking about putting yourself in, in the, the, the mind of a consumer. I often think about, like, how would I explain this to my dad? Because my dad's a smart guy um, who was an electrical engineer back in the 60s, but he, you know, does, he, he had to take that part of his brain out to start his business, right? So he relied on me to, to do all those things for him uh, ever since I was old enough to start doing computer stuff. So you know, I think about like, what, what would I tell my dad about this product or my mom? And that's kind of the approach I take on a lot of the consumer electronics. And I found that on YouTube, um, you, people are generally hyper enthusiasts, which is not a problem at all. It's great. Right, yeah. But you know, if you're out buying a laptop, is this good for my kid? Is this good for my mom? Is this good for my dad? Like, what is, why is this screen important? You know? Um, right. And that's kind of the approach I took. Or how's this game gonna work? And I'll tell you what, the biggest question I get on Chromebooks had been before that video, can I run Word on it? Or, actually, you know, you know what prompted it? This, it was that. I was getting those questions, can I run Word on it? And the other thing was I was buying Chromebooks, reviewing them, and then reselling them. And I was reselling them on Amazon, and they kept getting returned to me. Like, they bought it, and, like, they booted it up, and they couldn't run Word on it. So they, they, they were like, this is not going to run Word. So they, they would return it. And it was crazy. Like, every Chromebook I sold, at least, we get returned at least once. And That's that. And then I was like, you know, I need to make this video so that when they go to buy it, they know <laughs> what a Chromebook can do and what it can't do. Yeah, the only analytic experiment I ever did was, you know, maybe this is obvious and I shouldn't have even bothered, but I posted something on the website and on Twitter that was really like, for lack of a better description, a feel-good story. It was something that everybody who's involved in retro gaming should love. They should be, oh, this is great. We, you know, this is, we all should be happy about this. And nobody retweeted it. Like, you know, the, the hits on the website weren't that good, even after mm -hmm. I talked about it in the following week's podcast. Because sometimes, you know, I'll put out a post and it kind of no one notices. And then I talk about it in the podcast and they go, oh, I actually do want to know about that. Nothing. So just as an experiment, I took something that really upset me. I think it was something that Hyperkin did, you know, <laughs> and I just said, all right, I'm going to write a post that is 100% true, but a little antagonistic and I'm going to make sure like, Hey, you know, this could go wrong. Is this, is this the hill I, I'm going to die on? And right. it's just, you know, I didn't really care about that 
thing that I was talking about, but the bigger picture, you know, don't rip off consumers. Don't take advantage of a niche market. Call out companies that do this. Yeah, I'll die on that hill. That's that's absolutely something I'm very passionate about. Don't let big companies steal your money. Mm -hmm. I'll stand up for that. So I did it. And I mean, it was by far for that month, the highest, you know, clicks on anything I did on uh, Twitter, on the website and everything else. But the crowd that it drew was not at all the people that I want coming mm -hmm. back to visit. It was just, right. you know, and there was a lot of really smart people who saw the drama, who, yep. who then retweeted or commented and said, you know, did you actually read the article? It's it's very well written. It's just the first paragraph and the title are a little antagonistic. And I kind of stole that from Gizmodo because that website, no offense, totally went to shit. The whole website's garbage. There's like two good writers left and even they're trying to keep it alive as best they can. But that's their tactic now. They swear in the title. They try to get you mad enough to right. click it. And then and, and, by the time it gets to the article, you don't even care anymore. Right. And actually what happens too is that I found this through my through my news experience that the, the headline on the Facebook post is all people see. They don't yeah. even read the article. They, they have opinions on, on just from the headline because it, it guides the discussion. And this is where I think this is what frustrates me the most about where we're at, because there's never been a time in history. I'm going to get all like lofty here, but there's never been a time in history when we everyday people have a, a broader voice, a, a greater voice, a louder voice. And, you know, if you think about it, and I'm not trying to tout some crazy conspiracy theory, it's just how things work, that, that when we were growing up as kids, and, even, and for, for eons prior to that, um, everything that a society consumed from a media perspective uh, was controlled by people who had enough money to, to run the newspaper or run the TV station. And that, that's what really like, fascinated me about this internet thing from day one, was that mm -hmm. This is an equalizer. You know, I had a BBS when I was a kid and I had a cable TV show as a kid. I'm not a normal person here, but, but like, <laughs> but like I, I, had, um, <laughs> I had these things, but I couldn't, I couldn't reach the audience, right? There was not a mass scale that you could, you could achieve here. And you know, now we're in a period of time where there's a big power dynamic shift here away from a pre-screening of, of, of content for people. And I'm not suggesting that you know, the major TV stations and journalists were, were acting in an unethical way. They, they were not. In fact, you know, initially when these, these mass media things started, they were. Um, but, you know, ethics worked its way into the, into the scope of things. And, you know, but still at the end of the day, you have, you know, people deciding that's going to be on the news tonight and this isn't. Uh, you and I could decide to do a story because we feel like doing it. And, you know, it's a big change. And I think when you have the power whether it's within retro gaming or within news or anything else, um, when you have the power to move audiences in such a way, um, you have a responsibility to do it, you know, the right way with based on facts and data uh, and to, to get a story out to your audience that tells the truth. And mm -hmm. that's the tricky part now um, because unfortunately, like the middle of the road argument doesn't make a lot of money because people are drawn to the sensationalist headline. Right. Um, yeah. and, and that's the tricky thing. And I, I've been really, you know, I, I've probably, I've done some pretty harsh reviews of companies and people over the years, and I'm very careful about it because, you know, you got to make sure you've got, like, that's why I would bring back that Ethan Klein thing that I mentioned, because you've got to be certain if you're going to take that stance and and when you express an opinion you're expressing it because you want people to agree with you like that's that's 
the, the heart of it. I mean, I know some people that just enjoy. I have a friend of mine who's the sweetest guy in the world, and he's a, he loves trolling people on on online. He he doesn't he's not that way. He just likes to do that, right? But I mean, for the most part, I think when people express an opinion, um, you know, they they want others to agree with them, and I think it's important as media creators that you take responsibility and you make sure that if you're going to say that this this company is doing this practice, uh, be certain about it. And I've been very tempered lately because I, you know, I, I've had a few of these um, these companies. I, I have a very strict standard that I set myself to in, in regards to reviewing products because I don't think it's, you know, the Verge can say we, we don't take anything from any company, um, you know, but they have a whole sales department and they have the ability to separate editorial from, from sales. I don't mm -hmm. have that ability. I can't, I, I'm one, one company with, with a part-time employee. I can't separate sales from, from editorial. So I have to develop a, a policy that I follow, um, which is that I don't do reviews for money and all this other stuff. Um, and lately I've been getting these rather well-known brands emailing me contracts that require me to have them review content before it gets uploaded that, you know, want to pay for reviews and all this horrible stuff. And I think it's the, the fact that the, the, the industry I'm in is, is corrupted by the fact that so many people are on the take and don't disclose it. Right. And, you know, on my gut reaction, when I got one of these contracts uh, a few months ago, because I, I was never big enough, I think, to attract those agencies, and now I am. Mm -hmm. And my gut reaction was, let's expose them. Let's just name names and get it out there, you know? Um, but then I thought about it and I said, well, you know, the, the, the poor woman who sent me this contract, I mean, she, she is just doing what she's told as part of her job. Right. So what happens? Am I going to get her fired and, and cost her her living because, right. you know, the, her, her employer is in a corrupt, you know what I mean? Like it, 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 there's this Not chain that goes anything at all. It, they're still going to continue to do it to the next person. They're just going right. to crush you off their list. And that poor, poor person's going to get fired for nothing. It's, yep. it's going to accomplish nothing. It yeah. creates this whole, this whole snowball effect. And, and what, and, and I thought about it, like, what's my intention with this? I'm angry about this. I want people to know about it. What's the goal? What's the message that I want to deliver? Is the message that this company engages in this horrible practice? Or is it this industry is doing some really bad stuff and you need to know about it so that when you watch one of these reviews online, you know, if, if your favorite creator is not giving you the, the full scope of their relationship, you know, so what I ended up doing, and, and like I said, I, I don't know if I would have reacted the same way three years ago, right? So, but this time I decided... I'm going to put the, the language that they sent over, but I'm going to redact the name of the company, the person who sent it to me. And there was this whole back and forth, you know, between me and the person. And, you know, from a, from a journalistic standpoint, I did take a couple of journalism classes in college. Um, you know, really anything that's not specifically agreed to being off the record really isn't off the record, right? I mean, I could have, I could have easily quoted her and been within, journalistically within my rights to expose this company and these practices. But I, I felt like it wasn't necessary to, to go there because that would have been the focus. And I know that people yeah. watching that would have seen the link and said, oh, let's go after that woman for suggesting, you know, trying to make one into an unethical, whatever. It's not fair to her. And, and you know, it's or the it's, opposite or they yeah. would have gone after you. After me. And right. I think a lot of people don't seem to realize that the, the end result of everybody having a voice is the majority wins. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you... I mean, and it doesn't even matter what you're talking about. I could go on the, uh, the weekly podcast next week and be like, hey, I had a great time talking to Lon. It was kind of early in the day, so all I was drinking was water. And you could <laughs> go on your podcast and be like, hey, I had a great time with Bob. But man, he just kept doing shots of Jägermeister over yeah. and over 
Right. That it's, glass full it's of a, vodka he's got there. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, uh, I, it's not that I wouldn't do that, but I didn't. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> you have like six times the subscribers, so everybody in the world is going to be like, "Oh yeah, that was that interview Bob was doing shots of Jägermeister." It's like it's 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 one of those things. So whenever I, whenever I cross that line now, you know, I've had a bunch of things happen to me over the years, uh, in the YouTube social media space about this, and I always just my lines for all of this stuff are, you know always be me but just make sure i'm clear in my intentions and yep. if i end up getting canceled one day for you know because i say you shouldn't support big companies that intentionally rip off you know consumers you know what i guess that was my time then whatever but the the worst for me is dealing with dealing with the lies mm-hmm. it's just the people with a lot more subscribers say you said one thing or in the case of you it could have been that company that you worked with just has a big PR department and they put out, you know, put out the feelers like, Hey, look at, you know, this guy Lon's been lying about us. We never sent that. So right. you have the proof. No one yeah. cares. No one cares. Nobody and, cares about that. And you know, the other thing too, is remember big companies have lawyers. Um, so, you know, one of the yeah. things that, that, that I uh, did early on, and this cost me, uh, it's, it's a, that's a big number. I have an insurance policy for slander and libel. And a lot of creators don't have that. And, you know, if you're, if you're in the business of reviewing products, you, you probably, you know, I think especially large scale consumer products, you probably want to have one of those policies because uh, we experienced this one of somebody that we had worked with within the journalism uh, thing that we were doing locally um, got hit with a slander lawsuit over something that they didn't, they weren't even in the wrong about. Um, they, they, they had a, a person come on a message board. This was in the midst of a political election somebody on a message board had posted something that this person said was, was a lie, you know? Um, and the, the publisher of that website was, was protected under three or four different things here. The first one was that uh, the person who was, being, that was, who was allegedly being lied about was a, was a candidate for public office, so they were a public official and have a different standard for libel and slander, number one. Uh, mm-hmm. Number two, the message board post that the person had put up uh, was done not by the publisher of the website, by, but by somebody logging into the website and posting. And, you know, as, you, as you've probably been following, the Section 230 debate is all about the safe harbor that you as a, as a website creator have when someone posts something on your site. So, for example, Bob, if somebody went on your site and posted a comment that said that I, you know, that I eat, I eat kittens for dinner, and I said, <laughs> Bob, you have, you have, you have, made my, my reputation, you know, my reputation is ruined and I, and here's how much money it costs me. I'm going to sue you. Right. Um, you know, the, the fact is you are in safe Harbor because that content, that person that posted that comment, you did not pre-moderate. So therefore you're not the publisher under the law, under the eyes of the law. And that's what section 230 is all about. That's why YouTube didn't get sued out of existence when it first started. And that's why when you have to take something down, you've got to issue a takedown. However, when you're sued for that, uh, you have to go into court and prove that you have a safe harbor, which means you have defense costs. And so, you know, in the case of this local example, I think that it costs them several thousand dollars just to get the case thrown out. It just doesn't get automatically disappeared. You got to get a lawyer. You got to go through all this stuff. Um, so, you know, you, you could be totally right about something, but you could still be liable for defense costs. So I've talked about this a lot. One time it backfired. Somebody took something out of context and just completely, you know, uh, changed what I had said. But the point I always try to make is that in the U.S., you could sue anybody 
for anything. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get very far. But what that does mean that is if it's a big company that already have lawyers on their payroll, that, you know, they're already working for them eight hours a day, five days a week to, to just go through the trouble to start the lawsuit process costs them almost nothing. And another very important thing that nobody seems to believe, even though like lawyers say this all the time, yet somehow when I say it, it lights people up. Fair use on YouTube are YouTube's rules that are loosely based across laws. Mm -hmm. There are no government's laws in the planet that match up exactly. So YouTube could say, no, yeah, that's that's completely uh, 100% fair use. You're allowed to do it. You could still be breaking the law and you could still get sued for it. Now, very often, you know, even if you were to technically win the lawsuit, you're going to get, you, you know, you're going to spend infinitely more than you would get. It's going to get you bad press. It's going to make you look bad. Like there, there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't happen, but it uh, all the time, but it's still a genuine fear. Oh, yeah. And that's why, you know, even Nintendo is known for, for their cease and desist letters and stuff mm -hmm. like that, even for people that don't deserve it. And what are your choices? Are you going to spend 10 grand to fight it? Or, you, you know, what if you lose? And right. then Nintendo takes your house. You know what I mean? Yeah, so. it could happen. And, and, you know, by the way, fair use is not the law. This is a really important thing that I've heard lawyers tell me. Fair use is not the law. It's a defense. And right. so the minute you say it's a defense, you have to defend it, which means you got to hire a lawyer to help you go through that process to defend it. And, and you know, and I also love when, when people re-upload my content all the time, you know. Um, so, uh. so one of the challenges you have as a commodity content creator is that everything you make gets re-uploaded. And suddenly everybody who re-uploads your content with their own affiliate link attached becomes an expert in, in, in copyright law. Oh, it's a fair use. I was, I was, you know, I'm using it to promote my whatever. I'm like, no, you're, you're, not, <laughs> you're not stealing my content to do that. But, you know, that, you're right. I mean, it's just that, that complicated. And, and to put it into a retro video game uh, theme here, uh, do you remember the emulator called Bleem? B-L-E-E-M? Yes, of course. So, mm -hmm. you know, that was a commercial PlayStation 1 emulator that was being sold it was for you know the dreamcast and the mac and or dreamcast and windows there was another uh thing on the mac that was out for a while as well and they were you could probably make the case that they didn't reverse engineer anything they could have proven that their emulator was totally legal mm -hmm. but sony sued them knowing they couldn't afford to to sell their product <laughs> at the price they were selling 100%. and be able to yeah, yeah. so you know that, that's the kind of risk you put yourself into you know, that I think a lot of folks don't realize that, you know, if you start spewing out this stuff, and by the way, I think, uh, just bring Ethan Klein back up again, um, he had a, a, one of the few cases that actually went through the court system that developed some type of, of, um, of history here, because, you know, before the Ethan Klein case, there, there hadn't been anything that really made it to court on this topic, especially mm -hmm. as it relates to new media. So he was sued by um, some guy, he was making, you know, Ethan was making fun of somebody, uh, and, you know, the guy that he was, make, being, he was making fun of sued him for defamation or whatever. And they took it to court. Uh, Ethan, and I give him a lot of credit for this, uh, decided, I'm going to fight this. And he raised a bunch of money. I think it cost, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in legal fees for him to defend himself, because a lot of times these things just settle and you take the content down and it's over with. Um, but he brought it through all the way, and I'm pretty sure that it got to the point where there was a ruling. And the important thing about the Ethan Klein case is that it defined to some degree, granted it's one situation, but it defined to some degree some, some precedent now that rolling forward you can point to. You can point to the Klein case now that's saying, 
you know, that the amount of time you use is, is immaterial. It's whether or not the, the, the transformation of that content constitutes a proper fair use. So mm -hmm. there's, but that's, there's very little. Before that case, there wasn't much at all. So mm -hmm. you'd really be rolling the dice going to court and spending all that money versus just taking the content down and being done with it. And that's kind of the, the real trick here. And to some degree, you know, YouTube uh, you know, is often a problem from the content ID standpoint. But to some degree also, it provides greater protection for creators because in many cases, not all, but in many cases, let's say you did happen to steal somebody's music in one of your earlier videos. You, know, you put up Universal's, something owned by Universal, right? Um, they, they will generally not issue a takedown or even sue you because YouTube has created a mechanism by which, you know, maybe they'll grab some revenue from you, right? I mean, like, but, but, your, but your message, your, your, your speech stays up. And right. yes, it's, it stinks that you're not, you know, they're putting ads that they're making money off of from your work on there, but you also stole their music, <laughs> you know? So right. uh, um, it is kind of fair. Yeah. I mean, it, it gets into the weeds when you've got music playing in the background, like from your ringtone that suddenly gets flat. I mean, there's all these other edge cases that are bad, but I think on the whole, uh, what YouTube has done has enabled this medium to grow. Uh, and to some degree has allowed creators more flexibility with copyrighted music versus how it used to be. Uh, I, I went, I don't know if you've uh, been down to the YouTube space in Manhattan, but they, in order to use the YouTube space uh, down at Chelsea Market there, you have to go through a whole class about copyright and fair use uh, and clearances and all the stuff that I hadn't really ever thought about before. But, you know, back in the old days, the traditional media days, it was very uh, succinct as to getting the right permission making sure that you have the licenses in place before you can even have somebody's song appear in your work. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was as stringent then as it is now. It's just that more people now are getting hit with these things. And I think um, to some degree, the content ID system, while far from perfect, uh, has made things a little bit easier. And I certainly make use of that system to defend my, my work. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's some real benefit to it. It's just, it, it's just tricky navigating those waters. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you just you hit the nail on the head with a lot of this stuff. You know, anybody, any any YouTuber that claims to be an expert in fair use, I give an excellent chance that they're just regurgitating the YouTube rules and not understanding any of this. And for me personally, I've had so much theft over the years that I've made my my point very clear or my stance on this very clear. But if anybody re-uploads content, they're getting copyright struck immediately. I don't. Yep. I have no sympathy for any of that. And there's a bunch of people that for years have just read my content on their channels without mm -hmm. credit, which is messed up because myself and any of the people that contribute, if you were to, you know, if you and a, a giant YouTube channel were to say, hey, check out this cool thing on RetroRGB and you just read the info and left a link, mm -hmm. like that's a compliment. And whether that, whether that technically violates fair use or not, no one's going to care. That's a compliment. Right. It's great. Even if you disagreed, if, as long as you weren't, accusational about it that's fine but and I, I made my stance clear a couple times on the podcast like look my channel's still small i'm not going to call these people out because like we discussed before whoever has the most followers wins period right yep but unfortunately I, yep. I, i'm going to start keeping track and people people other people are starting to notice and there's a couple notorious ones though and every time it happens they'll put up a video about this new thing and it's reading word for word, including, you know, sometimes I'll make a grammar mistake or, you know, something like that. Word for word, one of my articles written by any one of us. And every time it happens, I just get 
10 text messages that day. Like, did you see that person's new video? Like, right. Nope. I yep. don't even want to click on it. I don't even want it popping up in my algorithm. I don't yep. just, you know, and people are taking notice and uh, a lot of people on both sides, you know, people that just watch the content and other content creators are starting to really know who are the thieves out there and who are the people you can't trust. Uh, and, you know, if there ever is a day where I could press a button and say, no, that's 99% of that video is my content, just right. with somebody else reading it out loud, I would. And, you know, like I said, all I ever ask for is just, just put a link. Yeah, so you don't even link. have to. You don't even have to say, you don't even have to show a picture of it. Right. Just mention. Summarize it and link it. That, that's easy enough. And, you know, it, it's funny because I got into something like, like we, similar to that. Um, there was a there was a some popular channel overseas that had taken some of my footage and was using it in their news report you know so they had taken you know minutes of of the work that i had done and then just mm -hmm. made their own video with it and and i you know i wrote to them nicely saying hey um you know this is my content um i'd really appreciate it if you re-uploaded the video without the content in there um, and I got this snotty response back, like, oh, you know, it's fair, fair use. Like, first of all, you're not even here in my country where I know what the law is in this country and you can't do that, yeah. you know? Um, and, you know, explaining that, oh, it's a fair use because we didn't use all that much. No, uh, we, we, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about this topic da da da. I, you know, and, and there's a, there's a nuance to it, which is, look, if they had uploaded my, a portion of my review and said, what a crappy reviewer I was, that's fair game. You know, like that, yeah. that you could argue that there's a fair use to referencing and transforming that original work for criticism. That's that's valid. That's one defense that you could you could win on. But if you are basically taking that content and uploading your own, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're uploading like, hey, this new thing just came out here. Here, this this uh, this new look at this thing, uh, this new gaming PC came out um, and here's how cool it looks. Da, da, da. That's not talking about my content you're you're stealing <laughs> the right. the work that i did even something innocuous as b-roll footage is still look there's still you know a, a monetary value to that to that work um and so you know i i've tried to when i've noticed these things occurring it's one thing when it's like somebody just trying to earn affiliate revenue i just take those down immediately when i see another youtuber doing it i reach out and say hey you know before i do something um i noticed that you did this i don't want to have to go through this whole process but just understand that um you know, this content is not free for the taking um, that, you know, if you wanted to use something, you need to ask first. And maybe I would say yes, you don't know. But um, I just yeah. got I, I just recently had to go after a pretty large uh, YouTuber. And there's a lot out there that and it's, and it's funny because there's people that, that have lots and lots of subscribers. And when you go and look at their channel, they don't actually produce anything new. Mm. You know, they 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 record some voiceover tracks, sometimes even hire somebody to do the voiceovers for them. And then they just pull down footage from all these different, all these different yeah. channels to fill in their B-roll, and it just—it's just like, how do people like? How does anyone gain anything from that? That these folks have millions of subscribers? I don't get it. Um, it's background noise. It's like morning radio. It's yeah, a lot of the drama is. channels do that. They just yeah. want to—they just want to spew off stuff and you know hope that this week they'll get a video over ten thousand views. And even though they have you know hundreds of thousands of followers it's it's a weird subculture that i want no part of whatsoever yeah, I, don't, I just, just i won't even pretend like it doesn't even exist you know, there, really there's a whole subculture of youtubers that make their entire following based on like all right you know a uh, new video from lawn this week let's 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 shit on the whole thing and talk <laughs> yeah, about right. all the all the, you know and 
like there's people that just have entire channels based on that and you know yeah. what if you do the edit you know the the unspoken etiquette of the footage that you use is like a desktop screenshot of the video playing mm -hmm. so you see youtube you see your name you see the things you know i don't uh, like that that in my opinion whether it's legal or not like hey you know you're sending people back to me please don't lie about me because i hate when that happens right but, like you know it's that's about it no such but... thing as bad publicity right it's uh it's it's exactly like yeah. and i could and okay. like I said, if I see if I see someone referencing my content, either praising it or criticizing it, you know that's fair game. Um, it's just the it's just the reuse. And for me, the reuse typically is somebody just trying to earn affiliate revenue off of off of what I do. And for me, it's, there's a very yeah. big uh, business risk there because um, you know most of my traffic are people who aren't subscribed to me; they're just searching. So if right. one of those videos begins to get competitive on a search thing, you know that could really cost me money. So I'm very I'm very diligent on that. Yeah, it's funny how how from a legal perspective how much of this stuff spills over each other because mm. um a lot of the knowledge that i'm saying and by the way i'm not a lawyer i've never pretended to be an yeah, expert i'm not one either <laughs> i just but know what it, can get me sued <laughs> yeah it comes from years of, of being on conference calls with lawyers mm -hmm. and the companies that i've worked for or companies that i've, I've done consulting work with so it, a lot of this stuff uh, really overlaps a lot and it was even when you know one of our products got cloned you know 15 years ago or something when I was working for that product development uh, company. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's kind of fascinating to me. It, and I, it's, the culture around that is kind of fascinating too. It is. And one of the things that I would suggest everyone do, even, even if you can't afford a lawyer, you probably know a lawyer and just talk to them because, you know, a lot of what you're dealing with, even if it's, if it's, you know, simple copyright stuff, um, you know, there's just, even on just basic torts, the things that every lawyer learns, um, mm. To have a conversation and say, hey, you know, here's what I do on YouTube. Here's what I say. What's my liability? You know, um, yeah, you know, while that's a good piece of advice, every lawyer I've ever talked to will give you an hour long answer. Oh, yeah. $600 <laughs> bill for their consulting. Yeah, exactly. Time and have you walk away from that convinced that every time you say good morning on YouTube, you're going to get sued for it. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I have remember... a realistic uh, option with that yeah. one, too. I remember talking to a friend of mine who was a personal injury attorney, and, and uh, he called me up one day and he's like, so wait a minute, you have these young people, these reporters going around reporting stuff. He goes, uh, what, what happens when one of those reporters backs over somebody? What are you going to do about that? I'm like, uh, he's like, you need this insurance, that insurance. And I was like, all right, let me just <laughs> get all the insurance I can get. But it's, it, but it's funny. It's the things you don't think about are the ones that are going to, they're going to bite you. And, you know, you could go from, uh, you know, from no subscribers and no viewers to millions if, if you hit the lottery the right way. And you know, suddenly you're in a whole different world. And I think it's you know, it's understanding early on what your liabilities might be, uh, to kind of guide that that thought process about protecting yourself because it's um, it's going to be the wild west for for the foreseeable future. Um, yeah. You know, as all these voices come out, and uh, it's it's crazy. Like it's funny. Like you, you and I could walk uh, around the streets of Manhattan, nobody would recognize us, right? But if we were if we were at the retro game convention, um, you know, we'd get a lot of people saying hello. And, you know, this is the, you know, these little niches of, of content have a lot of viewership. And, and as these things grow, I mean, look at the retro gaming economy. It's a crazy how much, how much, how many businesses and companies are able to sustain themselves making yeah. hardware for what you, th you would think is not, you know, not billions of people. Um, so, you know, there's, there's money at stake now. So there's things change, you know? Well, I mean, that's, uh that you just brought up two points so first of all and i probably should have said this when i was talking on your channel too but retro gaming can easily or or classic video games are equal to music in that 
if you like it, it doesn't matter when it was made. Your mm-hmm. favorite song could be something that was made 20 years before you were born, or it could be on a top 40 hit now. If you like it, you like it. So that's why it's growing is just because there's more people playing games. There's more people out there. But that's also why I get so absolutely livid when I see companies out there stealing products, companies uh, just in intentionally selling garbage because it hurts it for everybody especially the garbage right like that person that just says hey i have a a super nintendo in my closet from when i was a kid you know let me see if i remember it with rose colored glasses or if i really liked it and then they pop in one of those garbage twenty dollar cables every time they jump you could count until (laughs) mario actually jumps on the screen and it's like boy these games really were bad (laughs) yeah they throw it back in the closet and now that twenty dollar sale from that garbage company they get their sale but they're even getting hurt because that person will probably never go back and try it again right so you ruined it for everybody including yourselves so it's like that that one catalyst where life began right at that that bolt of lightning didn't hit at the right that moment you know that 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 you know right that nostalgic millennial or gen xer just puts it back in the closet and they miss out on the entire hobby because of that crappy adapter they bought yeah yeah absolutely so i guess those um raspberry pi kits where they they sell you a whole bunch of pirated stuff out of the box right Um, (laughs) and that drives me nuts too because that's another thing where it's like you know, I, right or wrong, I've always chosen which rules I felt were more important, right? So like when we were doing the medical grade computers, we were pretty damn strict about making sure they came up to those, uh, all of those standards because you don't want to find out that your computers were in front of 10 million people over the course of 10 years and it killed one of them because their pacemaker, right. you know, like yeah. we were strict about that. But when it comes to just the other stuff, it's like, well, maybe I won't really worry so much about all of that. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's I guess, guess it goes down a freaking weird road sometimes. <laughs> it's not easy. And you know it, it things change so rapidly now too. So it, it's it's you know what what's good today um just yeah. like we were talking before when you said, you know, you have these people telling you you're doing everything wrong, but the opposite was occurring. Um you know, when I started doing YouTube, everyone said make your videos 3 minutes or less. No, you know, no, no more than that. And I was doing 10 to 12 minutes. And then suddenly 10 to 12 minutes became the the thing to do. So I was in a good spot. And tomorrow, yeah. now YouTube's promoting shorts again. So who knows? <laughs> you know, it's uh, you, you, yeah. you just do what you think you know is right for the moment, and, and try to do it the right way and ethically, and and you know, and and take your responsibility seriously. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I we all have to make our own set of ethics. But for me personally, um, pre preloading a Raspberry Pi filled with games and selling it is stealing from people, mm-hmm. stealing from you know the original game developers, the rights holders from from game stores that you know may have lost a sale. Whereas telling people, hey, here's how you do all this stuff. Go get the ROMs if you want. There's somewhat ways to get them legally. There's some mm-hmm. ways not to. But that that creates a situation where a person has to make their own decision. And if they're one of the many, many people that I know that have a library of games that they've already purchased, and then they go download a ROM pack with every every game ever on it and you know only play you know, play the ones that they want, obviously. That's a different level, in my opinion. And I could be wrong. You know, a lot of people like to tell me I'm wrong about this. But w- when you're in that situation, it's I feel like it's a lot different because you're not just blatantly stealing from somebody. Right. And I think that's the big the big debate in this community. It will always be this will this will be like the ongoing never ending debate is is how to treat this ROM issue. Right. Like that's that. And, and it's something that we won't be able to answer in this podcast, but that's going to be no. an ongoing thing. One of the things that I love that Sega did was when they released the Sega Genesis collection on Steam, 
um, you mm. were essentially buying a pack of legal ROMs. And that was one of the yes. few instances, there's probably a few others that you know about that I don't know about, but there, it was one of the, the, the biggest instances I could see of a legal path to ROM ownership. Because you could take yep. those, I took one of those ROMs and booted it up in my Sega Genesis. It was awesome to, yep. to have that peace of mind to know. And I, had a, I did a, a little discussion on my channel a while ago about, you know, this notion, uh, and I don't want to go down to this rabbit hole because I know it's, it's going to result in a lot of opinions, but, but this notion of are the developers helped when you're buying a, a $300 collector, a, collect, a highly collectible game that was not a good game in its day, right? Um, but you, you buy this, this coveted game for three or 400 bucks, and yes, you technically own the cartridge, but is the developer gaining anything from your purchase today, right? And, yeah. and so that's what I have a hard time grappling with. And I understand there's licensing reasons as to why these developers can't release these games again. Um, but it, I, I think the, the world would be so much better served if there was a legal path to ownership. Um, Agreed. Because I would just love to, and I've been buying a lot of these remakes, you know, the Sega Visions on, on the Switch have been awesome because they, you know, granted they're emulated, yada, yada, but they're, they're enhancing them a bit, like Fantasy Star with the maps that they enhanced the Master System right. version with. Like, you know, there's some things that are out there that add value that I think are great to see. Um, I, again, I love what Sega did with, uh, you know, with their pack and, and doing that. And, you know, I wonder if some of these developers are just leaving a lot of money on the table by, you know, by not even looking at the possibility you know, what are they losing oh, by yeah. by selling ROMs? I mean, it's it, it. You know, I think a lot of us would do that. You know, we're we're Gen Xers. We've got disposable income. You know, well, a couple there's bucks. there's two other sides to that argument. First of all, um, that game, that cartridge that might be worth three hundred dollars, is not going to go down in price if you sell a ROM for ninety nine cents because it's mm -hmm. still just a digital ROM. Right. And you on the other side cartridge. of that, yeah. On the other side of that, it's not about. It, it's not always about how many games you can get or how much money you could make. How many people do you know that would absolutely love to buy any device, whether it's a Raspberry Pi, a Polymega, a Mister, whatever it is, and then just say, you know what, you know, I, I have, I have my cartridge for Super Mario Three, but I want Super Mario Two. I want to see mm -hmm. what that was like. Right. How many people would just grab their phone, press a button, spend ninety nine cents, and have it appear on their device? Yeah, and think and be happy about all of it. They don't have to go to shady websites with pop ups, right. and you know, just, <laughs> right. just get what you want for a reasonable yeah. price. So and that's what kills me about Nintendo is that you know, I, 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 I'll tell you, it's really weird because I, I have the Xbox One and the series. I have all these modern consoles. And for whatever reason, I keep going back to that Nintendo Switch. I play with that thing more than anything else out there. Even and the NES experience is not great on it, you know. Mm -hmm. and, um, I, I, and it kills me that Nintendo has obviously has had put some effort and thought into getting these old games in their library back out to their community through the network service, obviously through the subscription thing. But they're sitting on this awesome, great content. You know, the, the number of people in in proportion to the switch ownership base is very minimal you know if nintendo came out and said hey you want to here's here's our rom yeah, the roms are out there and in fact they're using these roms that are out there in their own commercial right remember it was exposed right. that they were using some <laughs> a pirated yeah. rom to um so so why not just sell it to people that have the original hardware that want to play it again i i don't see the harm you know and i understand that you yeah. know they don't want to you know eat into their network subscriptions and stuff now but 
how, how many would it eat into? I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, it, it, it just, I don't get it. Um, if, if, if it was me and I'd be looking at, I try to maximize the value of, 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 of my work, which is time, right? So when mm -hmm. I live stream, I'm typically recording a video at the same time I'm live streaming, right? Mm -hmm. Because I can get, you know, two, for the time investment, I can get two things. So right. if Nintendo could make, you know, another couple million bucks, maybe selling ROMs for a couple bucks a piece, and you can then make the things that they keep saying are illegal, legal, why not do it? I, I just don't get it. They clearly yeah. benefited from the, the work that the community did. Because um, I'd be willing to wager that they probably hired people that gained that expertise doing things that they deemed to be illegal to put it into the Switch. Um, you know, I don't yeah, get I it. I mean, but... Nintendo, Nintendo has made a bunch of very silly mistakes. And one of the biggest mm -hmm. ones is, you know, the majority of their audience um, for their first chunk of consoles for their first four even are all probably at an age where they have extra money to spend mm -hmm. and they don't want the switch experience they know you know if they played any games at all in the past 10 years they know how laggy and weird a lot of this mm -hmm. is the online play doesn't work so for nintendo to, to go the opposite and say hey casual users still right there but i'm going to take the mr nes core and we're going to re-release the original front loader nes it will play your old cartridges but you could also download roms from us on it and you know you could use original controllers or here's some wireless ones and we're going to charge you a premium mm -hmm. i mean there were people lining up around the nintendo store when their crappy little nest classic came out right exactly imagine, imagine if it was something that was like you know to a different level right. and then just advertise like oh you don't want to spend 190 dollars on a you know 35 year old console fine yeah go so get your 499 right. a year for our, some yeah so it's it would I benefit think about the development cost it would have been it would have cost them less to develop that than it would to develop the mini console you wouldn't have to make an emulator <laughs> you know, you, at that time i don't think the uh the mr nes core was as awesome as it is that's now true. it's, that's it's true. really incredible now it's really yeah. accurate so it's, I uh, it, it's really, I, I just, I, again, I think it, I understand where they're coming from. There's probably an investment in scale and certainly they made a lot of money off those little mini consoles, um, kind of bridged yeah. the holiday season for them. And I remember thinking like, oh, I want one of those things. And then I, I had to like, the, the rational side of my head had to come in and think, Lon, you have a million ways to play those games and this is the worst possible way <laughs> you could play them, you know? Um, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how all that works. Or if it was the opposite, if it was $49, and it was everybody's gateway drug into retro gaming, that would also be awesome. You know, yeah. it's it's not a terrible experience. It's just not as good as the other three ways that you already own to play it. But, you right. know, it's, yeah. And you, know what's, it's, you, know, you know what's funny about these old games, too, is that, you know, my, my so now that I have kids, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. So my seven-year-old and I, we play a lot of Animal Crossing together, and she's getting into games and stuff. And, you know, what's so funny is when I was a kid, 30 years ago would have been the 50s, right? So from, mm -hmm. from when my parents were... You know, I mean, like I was a kid in the '80s. Thirty years, it's the '50s. Previous, um, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. just like back to the, you know, back to the future. And you know, it's it's funny. I look at the things that my parents played with back when I was that age, and nothing that that they had as kids had had any it was even remotely interested to me in the '80s. Given that we had all these electronics and the video games, and and yet my daughter is fascinated with the games that I used to play as a kid. You know, like she mm -hmm. loves those Mario games. She doesn't always like to play them, but she likes to watch. You know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't look old to her. You know, the graphics right. look maybe a little bit old or whatever, but um, we, we've been playing uh, Shantae together, the new one on the Switch. Um, we bought mm -hmm. the physical version from, uh, um, uh, from Limited Run Games. And it was so fun because, you know, it came in the package and there was an instruction book in there. And my daughter devoured the instruction manual 
like I used to do yeah. on the ride home from the store, right? And so mm -hmm. as we're playing the game, she goes, oh, that's, that's this. Like she knew all the characters. It was, really, it was really fun to kind of see that. And, you know, these things are, as you mentioned, they're, they're kind of timeless. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to see. I think that to some degree, you know, when you think about popular culture and how things change, you know, we've kind of plateaued, I think, over the last 30 or 40 years in that, that things have gotten better. But I'll tell you, I've spent a lot more time, maybe it's just because I'm getting older, um, but, you know, I've spent a lot more time on the older stuff or the things that are new that, that are kind of like how the old games used to play than I have been on the newer stuff. And maybe it's just because I'm old. I don't know. But <laughs> it's just interesting to see my yeah. kids, you know, not dismiss the things that I was playing with at their age the way I did, my, what, the way I did with my parents' stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the style of game and, and how good it's evolved is a big part of it. I mean, the story about your daughter, it's its the same as a 10-year-old kid that's starting to play guitar that gets into heavy metal. If he mm -hmm. hears Master of Puppets today, right. it's going to have an equal impact on him as if he was a kid in 86 and heard that song or something. Right. So, but it's, you know, like, I, for me, I remember seeing Atari, and I never had one uh, until later on. I think I was like a teenager when I picked one up at a tag sale or something. Mm -hmm. And those games were neat looking, but they were primitive. You had to use yeah. a lot of your imagination. I had a right. Tandy 1000 computer. Mm -hmm. I remember playing the game Icon Quest for the Ring, which was okay. very Zelda 1-like. But, you know, we're with four-bit little Atari-style characters. Yeah. And then you hit the 16-bit, 32-bit era. And all of those games, you, you stopped having to pretend Mm -hmm. You stopped having to pretend that a rectangle was a character. You could see right. a character, and yeah. the limitations of the consoles weren't there. Now it was just about the game developers. Mm. So that's why I think my favorite era was the 16-bit era, spilling somewhat onto it. But then you get into the 3D graphics, and then immediately resets. And now you're in, even though it's this PlayStation 1, you're in Atari 2600 land of... You have to use your imagination that, you know, the crazy pixelation is a, a foggy street, right. you know, and yeah. it's once once gimmicks get past that and reach a state where it's solid that's when it's really awesome for me mm -hmm. so like i've always loved all modern racing games yeah and you know looking back there's some that i would replay there's some that I, I wouldn't they were just cool in the time but i like that style of game and a lot of the 3d first person shooters like i still can't get into them because if your frame rates are dropping to 15 frames a second, I'm going to get nauseous and throw up after five minutes of playing. So, <laughs> it's no fun for you. you know. No. That's what, that's what like, v, where VR is at right now. Um, yeah. you know, I, I, and Smoke Monster and I are big VR people. Um, I wish I had more time for it. But the, you know, I, I tried VR out first at PAX in Boston right when it came out, or right mm -hmm. when this iteration of it came out. Now, I had tried it back in the 90s at the, with those big, huge head thing you know, i forgot what the virtual virtuality headsets it was yes. at the mall um, they're terrible and, yeah the nostalgia <laughs> critic had a great video on those he actually found one at a museum and they got it working again it was really cool to watch it um but it was not you know it was not the lawnmower man experience right it just wasn't it wasn't ready yeah. and and it was funny because back in the 90s it was so hyped it's going to be awesome it's like the future of everything and it was total garbage right and then um, fast forward to 2016, and I was at PAX, and I tried on the, the, the HTC Vive, and I was like, holy crap, this is the freaking holodeck. And what's been fun about watching the development of VR is that it's reminded me a lot of the Atari 2600 days, because everything's an experiment. It's all very short-lived, like the good games and the good experiences are very short-lived kind of things, because your eyes just can't handle it for longer, first of all. But also, it's, you know, they're trying to 
develop the mechanics that will define this. And there's so many experimental things out there that are so fun to just, just explore um, that I've, you know, whenever I have time, which is very, unfortunately, not often, to just pop on the headset and just start playing around with stuff. It's just that, you know, things are just really cool in that space right now. And, and that's where I'm, you know, like when I look at my PC, like that's why I upgraded is to get better VR out of it. You know, like oh, that's, yeah. that's like driving everything. And what kills me, back to the analytics, uh, what kills me is that whenever I do anything VR on my channel, it tanks because the consumer yeah. interest just isn't there. And the only hope that I see is the, um, is the Oculus Quest uh, stuff. Um, that is beginning to take, not, I'm not saying it's like, you know, console level here from an adoption standpoint, but I'm seeing some trends in my data that suggest the Oculus Quest is actually selling to some degree. And what they've done is they've put together a very consumer friendly device because you buy this one thing and you put it on your head and you turn it on and it works. Um, and it's better than you ex expect it to be. Um, and that's been a lot of fun to follow. And you, know, and you can hook it up to your computer and get the PC VR experience too. It's like an all-in-one kind of thing. So like, I'm really excited about VR. That's what, from a gaming perspective, that's, like, that's the innovation that I'm seeing now. Because, yeah. you know, I, 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 back to Cyberpunk, you know, I, I bought the game and I had the Series X. So I said, let me buy a game that will play on the Series X because we know it, it doesn't work well on the other consoles. And, you know, I'm playing through them. Like, I love the, the ambiance and the atmosphere, but it felt like, like every other game I've played over the last five years that, that, that you would consider a modern game. You know, it, was, yeah. it has different mechanics that are maybe innovative in a small way. But, you know, like, it, feel, it feels like any other game I've played. But when I step into the VR experiences, it's so different. And there's so many limitations that are driving the, creative, the creativity uh, in mm -hmm. a way that I'm not seeing in, in, in standard games. So I'm, I'm really excited about VR. I think it's, you know, it's, it's going to take a while to get there. I think the headsets have to get more comfortable. And there's a lot that has to occur. Um, but I think we're going to look at VR now and say, like, oh, that, I remember those, it's almost the Atari 2600 equivalent. It, it's, yeah. it's rudimentary, but there's so much interesting stuff in it um, that I'm really, uh, we have this one thing, it's a, it's a Google makes it, you, you can paint in three dimensions. Oh, that's neat. It's really, like my daughter does it. So you can, you can paint over your head and like walk through your creations. And, you know, it's just, um, what, what surprises me is just how, how good it tracks position, the position of your hands, the position of where you are in space, like all those things they've, they've figured out. Um, it's just all the other stuff <laughs> that, uh, that they have to work on. But there's a lot of cool things that are happening there. And, and that, that's, where I'm, that's what excites me the most on, on the gaming side of things right now. Um, it's that. And then all the new retro hardware. Like that stuff yeah. excites me too. Because I can get, I can re, you know, I put that mode thing in my Dreamcast and it just turned it into something new for me. You know, like that, that excites me. The Mister is, hmm. is a way to experience things in a way that I couldn't before. I had the hardware, but I had to mod it to get, to get it to work with my team. You know what I mean? Like all that stuff is out the window. I can just turn this thing on and experience old things new. And, and that's, that, that's the two areas that really excite me right now. Absolutely. I'm also looking forward to the HP uh, virtual reality headset, mm -hmm. whatever. I forgot yeah, the name do. of it, but it's up for pre-order now. It's expensive, but it's yeah. something I would definitely want to at least try out because... It's a 4K, yeah, 4K yeah, experience. 4K, it's... Square 4K per mm -hmm. eye, and yep. I think it's at 90 hertz. 
But I think the secret with VR, and I could totally be wrong here, but I think the secret might actually be higher frame rate, not yep. so much higher resolution. So something at 720p, we're running at 240, right. might actually be infinitely better than 4K at 60 for something VR-based. Yeah, the, the, the frame rate makes a big difference. Um, and, and 90 at a minimum, I think, is where you need to be. And it's also, it's not just for the for the realism. It's also so you don't yak all over the place because the any dip in frame rate becomes very disconcerting. And so the, um, and this has been a whole nother part of the development. So you'll see on, on Steam VR and P PlayStation and Oculus, they all have systems in place to do frame blending so that when you have a frame rate dip, the, the, the hertz, the res, you know, the, the frame rate doesn't actually decrease in the headset because that's mm. what gets people out of, out of whack. Um, and like No Man's Sky is one of those games that really pushes the hardware. I don't think it's very well optimized for VR, but it's, it's one of those games that you'll see a lot of that, that processing going on to try to smooth out the experience a bit because it's just a enormous game that just has a VR mode, you know. But we're starting to see more with it. Um, the Star Wars Squadrons, like, that's just an awesome experience. I haven't played enough of it yet that I, I really want to get into it and spend some time with it. But, you know, having to be able to sit in the X-Wing cockpit, I mean, it's just awesome. So there's some... Some really cool stuff out there. And yeah, it, I think the HP headset is looking pretty cool. I have found that the GPUs just have not gotten to where they need to be. Mm. Um, even like at the super high end. So I have a 2080 Ti and for some stuff it's not enough. Yeah. Um, now that was last year, that was the top of the line, but the 3090 might do better, I don't know. But it's, you know, it's still, there's still some work to be done there. Yeah, I, it's a, I kind of think the, the brilliance of the Virtual Boy was in how little they put on the screen mm -hmm. because they weren't trying to do full motion video and they weren't trying to do all this crazy stuff that they can't even really pull off now. It was basically a bunch of red lines, Game Boy style graphics, but in you know 3D. I think yeah. that's kind of why it worked. I mean, some people don't think it worked well at all. I think it did. And I think that's why it did is because all of the simpler stuff is what looks better. Tennis, you know, Wario with Game Boy style graphics. I thought that actually worked out. I have a Virtual Boy that I bought um, not all that long ago. And it's, you know, you look, you know, I had rented one when it first came out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that is cool. I can't see this. You know, it was, it was a lot of work to, that's part of the VR problem. It's a lot of work to use it. You got to have the energy yeah. and... Um, but yeah, it's kind of neat. And, you know, a friend of mine who does a lot of uh, TV production said to me, he goes, you know, the best works that you see are the works where there is some either artificial or real, uh, limitation that the artist has to work around. Yes. And I thought that was real. Like, you, know, you look at, um, you know, when I think when the Instagram videos or when Vine, remember that five second, whatever it was, um, right. you had a lot of creative stuff that came out of the result of only having a certain amount of time in which to tell your story. And I think that's the same with, you know, with a lot of this, this VR stuff and, and, and to some degree, the retro video games are so cool because they had significant limitations. And you look at some of these uh, YouTube videos about how they had to work around those things or figure out some way to tweak it. You know, it, it, it lends itself to more creative ways to solve the problem. Now it's just like, I feel like an old, old fogey here saying this, but nowadays, you know, they just throw more gigabytes at it, right? Yeah, make the game 150 gigabytes and uh, yeah. And, you know, so it, it is like, there's no limitation. You don't have to fit it onto a floppy drive or into a four megabit cartridge now. You know, it's, it's so I think there's, there's, the, the VR is, is a, new, a new limiting factor technologically that requires creativity to make a good experience. And I, and I think those, those are the things that I appreciate the most are the ones where, wow, they got this to work on that. 
like that's cool. Um, I even look back to the original Star Wars movie. I can't get my daughter into it, unfortunately. But every once <laughs> in a while, you know, I turn on the original Star Wars, and it's just you know, when you watch it, and it looks so. Yeah, it's just such a part of our culture, but there was a day in which there was no Star Wars and then a day in which there was. And you, you look at that movie and, and if you try to put yourself in the shoes of what would this have been like if I had never seen something like this before? It, it's just like blows your mind when you think about that. And the, 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 what, what made it so amazing was just how limited everything was and what they had to invent creatively, both in, in an engineering sense and a cinematography sense but they had to create to make that happen, right? Mm -hmm. It was the limitation that made it awesome, which is why to some degree, like the Star Wars films we see now, eh, you know, like I was watching, I loved Rogue One. I thought it was a great film, but I was thinking at the time of the last space battle in the movie, you know, is this what every Star Wars movie is going to be like now? Just take a bunch of computer generated X-Wings and fly them around, <laughs> you know? And they had a, uh, a behind the scenes uh, video of how, you know, they, they, they can run the battle and then just choose what camera positions they they want to use for the shot, you know, because it's a program. So, you yeah. know, I think, and I think back to watching like the behind the scenes that George Lucas had to put through and they had a, you know, you had one shot that was going to work, <laughs> you know, and, and that was it. Um, so the, the amount of difficulty in like replicating, the amount of difficulty in creating Return of the Jedi's last scenes in the space fighter realm in particular um, was, immensely difficult because they were essentially working with a revision of of what they started with as opposed mm -hmm. to today with all the modern star wars films where it it's in a computer to some degree right it's it's right. Uh, it, that doesn't diminish the artwork and the creativity has to go into it but the technical limitations are not there and i and i think that 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 to me i think is something that i would love to see game developers try to and we've seen this in a few examples recently of some games where they were released on major platforms, but the developers limited themselves to an older piece of hardware to make the game. And I can't remember which two I'm thinking about. Uh, Xeno Crisis was one of them. Yeah, and Tanglewood was yeah, another one. It was a few, you know, and those turned out to be really fun because yeah. there's that, they had to live with that limitation that they would have had to deal with then. And I could see as, I'm not a developer, but if I was, I would see that as a really fun challenge to have to work within the limitations of the hardware, yet apply all the things that we have learned about good gameplay since that hardware was released. And I think that's what makes Xenocrisis work really well for me. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I interviewed Matt, uh, the creator of Tanglewood, and, and hearing mm -hmm. the inside story of how he got around and uh, around some of those limitations and how he, he worked into it, it was really cool because he used all original development hardware too. He didn't, hmm. you know, he tried uh, he tried to make it as an authentic an experience as possible. I thought it was pretty incredible. That's cool. There, there's a lot of people trying to emulate that in the music business too, and I don't think anybody's quite pulled it off yet. Both because you have to have the original understanding, right? If right. you download a plugin that makes your guitar sound exactly like the one from your favorite album, you have no idea that the engineers took six weeks of of tearing down and setting up to right. get it right. You know, yeah. the artist had to have a hundred performances of the same thing just because they were trying to get the amps right. You know, nowadays, like I I, I try to record. Uh, legitimately the same way you always mm -hmm. have. So only punches, punch-ins during stops, same thing that they've done since the 50s. Um, but I record clean into an interface and then I get to go do whatever I want with that. I could, you know, that weeks of reamping might take three hours now. So, right, right. you know, it's it's kind of an interesting thing and all, it, 
you know, the limitations and the ways around them and the importance that some of them were kind of applies to a lot of different fields from video games to, to everything really. Oh yeah. We're spoiled by, by riches now. You know, I, I remember when I was, I was a kid, I was probably middle school. My friends were starting a band, you know, and it's like every middle school band. Right. But there's always that, like the, the, you needed the recorder because you couldn't, you didn't have a way to record your band. Right. So there's right. always like this one guy in town who's got the, the, the multi-track recorder that you had to like get on his good side for, you know? So there was this one teenager that had the Ask multi-track recorder. Yeah. recorder, right? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so they had to go to him to, to record it. And, you know, there was no way to, there's no digital anything, you know? So it's, uh, it, it was really funny. We, we made a music video. So I had taken, I'm trying to remember how we even did this. I, 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 rec- I edited the video with my camcorder and a VCR, so you can imagine how difficult that was. Uh-huh. And then the music, <laughs> I had to, I had to record the audio. That's right. So my camcorder had a voiceover function where you could change the video but keep the audio track, which was awesome. Like that, that was a major feature of this camcorder. Um, so we took the audio from the cassette tape they made from that guy's multi-track recorder. Put it on the videotape, and then we we spliced in footage of of them um, doing their thing, and, and I and I think we wanted to like have some like like fighter jet thing. So do you remember the the Action Max? Mm, I don't know if you remember the Action Max. It's it was, drawn it, like it, it's triggering something in my brain, but I, I'm not picturing it. So the Action Max was a game console that worked with your VCR, and so you had this. This long story, but you had this sensor that you'd stick on the television, and there was a little round part on the image that was carved out, and it would send a flash to the sensor, and you had to shoot this light gun at the screen at the right time when the sensor, when the the thing was lighting up. It was was not a very good experience, but it had, (laughs) you know, real video as the gameplay. So we were taking scenes out of this Action Max videotape and putting it into the music video. So it was, uh, it was, it was bad. It was really bad, but it was, it was amazing. It's absolutely awesome to hear stuff like that. But, you know, it was fun a kid that same middle school kid could grab their phone and yeah. make the entire same thing and it'll, it'll it'd be youtube quality <laughs> i look at like you know garage band on the mac and it, like it just comes with every mac and every ipad or every phone as you mentioned like you've got it in your pocket like this thing video wise 4k 60 out of both lenses like it's i got three cameras in the back that it can shoot at the same time <laughs> i mean it's it's just it, it's just amazing to me and that's what i you know and that's what it is it's just the you know, I, 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 I found like it's that limitation really teaches you something that when you don't have the limitation, you lose something there, you know? So we'll see. I think there's still pr- plenty of limitations out there, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah. you know, I think in our space, maybe it's just because we're getting old, yeah. but well, uh, I think this feels like a good place to wrap it up, but we actually haven't even covered a lot of the stuff I wanted to talk about. So we're going to okay. have to do another one of these in yeah. a couple of months. Let's I don't do care it. whose channel it's on, yours, mine, whatever yeah. else, but I still maybe wanted we'll to ask you. Let's, let's, get, let's get our injections and we can meet up in person and do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I still got to tell you that, that crazy cable card story. Oh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of, of, of fun reasons to do a follow-up. So let's let's continue this at some point in the future, hopefully in person at yeah. some point. Well, you know what we can so. do? We can go to the YouTube space. I took that class. I may as well use the, use the place and uh, we can do it there. It's be been fun. closed for a while. Yeah, the, oh, even yeah. pre-COVID, it, it was closed for for six months before oh, that. I don't know okay. why they shut it down. But if you go on the website, it says closed until further notice. So, so maybe they reopened it. Maybe yeah. they re- redid it. But last December, I wanted to go and it wasn't open yet. Oh really? Wow. Yeah, I think they shut down for the holidays and then they saw the COVID erupting and they just shut everything down. So maybe after uh, after April or May, maybe we'll see. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, thanks well, for thanks having for me. It was fun. Doing this. this was a lot of fun. We're definitely going to do another one of these. Okay. And, you know, I'll put links to, of course, everywhere to find you on YouTube, your social media and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, your, yours is definitely a channel I'm subscribed to. And I, uh, you know, it's, I mean this respectfully, of course, but I, I see every one of your videos and I'm like, oh, I don't need one of those. Don't need one of those. Yep. Ooh, that's neat. Let me watch that review. So it's and a, that's you got a good variety of stuff. Yeah, and that's how it works, and that's what, it, and that's the challenge of my subscription base, because not everybody subscribes for the same reasons, and that's okay. If people don't want to watch something, totally fine. You know, we're 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 doing just fine, no matter what it is. So thank you for your yep. for your viewership, and I watch all your stuff too. Oh, thanks, man. All right, well, we'll talk to you soon. Very good, thanks.